Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Nate Hockman. He is a senior at Colorado College, but for someone so young, he's compiled a nice dossier of publications already in National Review, City Journal, uh, Spectator USA, The American Conservative, and other outlets. He's here to report on what's going on with young Americans today, at least what he's witnessed, especially among young conservatives in this age of pandemic and woke and elections and chaos. Welcome, Nate. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, I mentioned the City Journal piece. Uh, Describe what that piece was and actually how it came about. Yeah, so it was probably a, a little over a month now uh, that I that I wrote it and it was sort of right around the time that Portland was really becoming a national news story you know it had been there had been unrest in Portland since you know the beginning of the sort of nationwide George Floyd protests but it really started getting picked up in the in the legacy media when uh, the Trump administration sent in uh, agents from the Department of Homeland Security. And, you know, there's enormous amount of hemming and hawing about the sort of imminent fascism of the fact that Trump was sending in agents. Um, so I, I, I was sort of interested in what was going on. I live in, in rural Oregon in Hood River, about an hour or so outside of Portland. Um, and I had a sort of distinct feeling that the coverage that we were seeing in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post, um, if not uh, outright uh, you know, fabricatory, it then certainly was, was only giving a, a sort of segment of the story. So I drove down into Portland to report for, for City Journal, which is uh, one of my favorite magazines. Um, and I, you know, was there for, for the entire night and, and covered what was going on and, and came away and, uh, and wrote the piece. And it was interesting, you know, there, there, there are parts of what's going on in Portland, um, that I think the media gets right, but there are also, you know, simultaneously someone down there like me, who's looking at the protest with a much more critical eye than I think a lot of New York times and Washington post reporters are, um, picks up a lot of, a lot of parts about the protests that don't necessarily get covered. So, you know, part of that is the violence, right? Obviously the, you know, the media is, is very, very committed to the narrative that the protests are quote unquote, mostly peaceful. But, uh, another part that I really noticed that was interesting was just the feeling of routine 
and sort of almost bureaucracy and stagnation to the protests. You know, they, they've been going on for uh, more than three months now. And when I was down there, they'd been going on for upwards of two months. And it just felt like everyone was sort of going through some motions and there wasn't really there wasn't really anything happening it, that everyone sort of engaged in the protest was sort of just showing up, doing the same thing night in and night out. And protesters and, and, and police and law enforcement were locked in this sort of unending dance where they both did the same thing night in, night out, and, and, and no one really could figure out how to get out of it. And it just, it was a very odd sensation to see that happening as someone who hadn't been participating in it for, for you know, the, the first part of the two months, because it was just, it, 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 it felt incredibly stagnant. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know exactly uh, what, what will come of all of this, but it, it, it's, it's certainly an odd phenomenon, what, what, what's continuing to happen in Portland. You, you do highlight a certain ritual aspect or performative aspect to the protest and and the police and that there was even something comic or ludic i mean comic with serious sides of course but that there was there was there was a, a little bit of play acting going on really on on both sides here and 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 the the other reports that you hear on the news say they didn't they didn't catch this. Why, why might they be? Was it just they're, they're not paying close attention? They're not out there on the street, or somehow giving the performative aspect of it undermines the moral meaning of the protest narrative. Is that is that the real problem? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sort of impugn the, the sort of the motives of individual journalists, but it's it's quite clear to me that. Anyone who's looking at the protests with a critical eye notices this. And the problem with the mainstream media coverage is none of all of the reporters are, you know, highly sympathetic to what's going on in places like Portland and are completely uninterested in looking at it with a critical eye. So the the performative aspect of the protest is clear. I mean, it's it's it as you as you said it at certain times it verges on absurd. You have you know there are people with cameras everywhere. And the protesters pretend like they don't see the cameras, but of course they see the cameras. Um, and, and they'll sort of show up in the middle of the camera as there's tear gas in the background, and they'll throw their fist up and look defiantly at you know, the line of law enforcement. And it's a perfect photo op, and they know it's a perfect photo op, and it you know, is on the front page of the New York Times the next day. But there's this weird sort of, uh, you know, yeah, like a play acting ritual that's going on where you have a lot of professional activists um, who are... Uh, you know, sort of view themselves as, you know, heroic, courageous uh, fighters for justice, sort of playing out that role in real time for the cameras and the reporters and, and you know, the, the media system writ large. And because the media is completely uninterested in, you know, seeing that, right, they're much more interested in portraying them as the heroic, courageous advocates for justice that they would like them to be. Um, and so it, it falls to someone like me, you know, a 22-year-old college student writing for City Journal to actually notice that. And, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting. I have a lot of progressive friends. On uh, Most of my friends on somewhere like Facebook are lefties. Um, and when I, when I posted the article, it ruffled a lot of feathers. I mean, it was really, people were, were really upset at my characterization. Um, and, uh, you know, who knows exactly why that is, but it, it seems to me that the reason that it was sort of unnerving to a lot of people is because it was an accurate portrayal of what's happening in Portland. Um, and, you know, that's not something that you hear in the media. A, a lot of outsiders, could you tell, 
people, non-Portland people coming in? You know, it's it's. I can't say for sure, right? Because you know, not everyone's sort of carrying their their state licenses on them. Um, but what is certainly true is there are sort of different circles of protesters at the protest. It's almost like there are different protests going on at 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 it, sort of simultaneously. And you've got you know the people who are there to sort of be seen and you know take social media uh, posts and 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 show everyone in their sort of social groups how committed they are to social justice. Um, you've got the sort of college students who really just want a socially sanctioned way to get out and socialize with people and do something and not be cooped up in their homes. And then you have the professional activist class who are, you know, their full time job is organizing and activism. Um, and, and certainly those people, if not from out of state, are, are certainly sort of not the average protester. And it's, it's I think certainly some of them are from out of state, um, but it's a group of, of highly well funded people who are, you know, whose entire job is to sort of organize these protests and, uh, and agitate um, continually. And, and they have been doing that for months. Um, and you can really tell who those people are and uh, sort of compare it to the larger sort of hoi polloi of people milling around. Um, and, and that's certainly noticeable. Is there any evidence, have you heard any whispers of uh, law enforcement, FBI, say, infiltrating the professional protester group to try to see where the money is coming from. Who is, who's sponsoring these things? I mean, someone's feeding all of these people every day. Someone is, is providing facilities and, and, you know, people need money. They can't just sit around and, and, and protest all the time. They need support. Any, any, any hints that there's some investigation taking place that you picked up? You know, I'm not, I, I'm not sure if there are official investigations taking place. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and, you know, I'm not qualified to, to sort of speak on ex exactly who's funding these protests. But you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to understand that these protests are largely benefiting from the support of the elite, right? Obviously, you see that in places like the media, which are enormously uh, sympathetic. And you have sort of increasingly absurd cognitive dissonance, right, where you have that shot from CNN last week with a guy standing in front of a burning building and saying, you know, the protests are mostly peaceful. Um, but, you know, in terms of funding, right, the, the sort of the various nonprofits uh, and, and funds, you know, like the Minnesota Freedom Fund, for example, that popped up to support uh, bail funds for people ar arrested protesting um, have raised millions of dollars. And, you know, that's not coming from the sort of average working class Joe. It's coming from people who have millions of dollars. Um, and it's it's just it's it's enormously clear that despite the fact that these protests are styling themselves as grassroots movements of the people, and there's certainly normal people there, to be sure, their real institutional support comes from the elite, the, the cultural and, and some of the political elite. And it's ironic because they've sort of styled themselves as revolutionaries. Um, but really, they wouldn't be able to do what they're doing if they weren't uh, sort of had the, if they weren't possessing of this institutional superstructure that gives them an enormous amount of support, funding, covers for them in the media, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's um, it's, it's always amusing to me to see these people sort of portray themselves as courageous dissidents um, when, when they really are the mainstream. I mean, they, they really are. They do have the support of the mainstream. In your City Journal story, you quote a young activist who says that resistance, just pure resistance of any kind at the present moment is good for her cause. 
Was that a common opinion, do you think? Well, it certainly is for the professional activists, and she was one of them. She was, a, I think, a spokeswoman for one of the sort of main organizing groups in Portland. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you talk to these people, it's sort of conventional wisdom that complaining about destruction of property or even violence against people is a, is a function of privilege, right? That to, to sort of tell people how they should protest um, is something that privileged people do. And, and that's, you know, echoed in the sort of elite narrative, right? There's, it's not quite as explicit in places like the New York Times or CNN and MSNBC, but there are a lot of people who at the very least are apologists for or soft peddling the enormous violence and destruction happening in places like Portland. Um, and, you know, the fact that the, the activists are more honest about it, I think, is, is really the only difference between them and a lot of the people who are ostensibly supposed to be, um, you know, governing the country and, and uh, in charge of, of sort of our, our major cultural institutions. Do they have any awareness that they are becoming deeply unpopular, not just with conservative or moderate Americans, but the Democratic leadership now in the last in the last few days do they or, I mean, are they surprised would they be surprised by negative reactions to them you know i'm not sure i you know i i don't know a lot of these people intimately but it's interesting to see you know the democratic leadership and people like don lemon on cnn for example say this has got to stop. You know, Don Lemon, you know, when he was t uh, talking to Chris Cuomo last week said, this has got to shop, stop. It's, it's showing up in the polls, right? Which on its face is a ludicrous reason to be, you know, opposed to rioting. You should be opposed to rioting because rioting is morally wrong. But, you know, it's, 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 it, it will be interesting to see how this plays out in the coming months in terms of the electoral fortunes of both parties because, you know, Americans really detest violent unrest, right? And it's, you know, uh, Americans by and large are a uh, decent and noble people and you, and, you know, really care about things like racial justice. And you saw that in the enormous polling support for BLM, Black Lives Matter, at the beginning of these protests, because um, Americans are a, are a fundamentally decent people and they care about human dignity. But at the same time, you know, in their hearts, most Americans, and this goes for Democrats or and Republicans and independents, really detest the sort of agitation and, and, and violent destruction of our cities that you're beginning to see. And as much as uh, you know, people in sort of leaders of the Democratic Party and people on CNN want to run coverage for these people, uh, eventually they can't and the cognitive dissonance will be too much. And I think you're, you're clearly starting to see that now. And I wouldn't be surprised if it had significant ramifications for the November election. Uh, what are they, what are these different groups that you observed going to do if Donald Trump wins? Well, I think I can't be completely sure, but if 2016 was any preview, things are going to get really ugly. I mean, 2016, the night after in Portland, right? I can, I can only speak to Portland because that's where I live. The night after uh, Trump's election, there was widespread unrest in the city. And uh, on his inauguration, uh, you know, Jan January of 2017, there was a mass organized violent movement that uh, that almost overwhelmed the city. And, you know, that was 2016. Now that there's a sort of momentum throughout the country of violent unrest, and a lot of these people have 
learned that they, there won't really be any consequences for them destroying their own communities. Um, I can only imagine what's going to happen. Uh, and, you know, I can only hope that, you know, uh, democratic leadership and, and, you know, elite leaders of cultural institutions actually attempt to discourage that and attempt to make it clear that there are real consequences for destroying America's cities. But what I've seen the last few months has not made me very confident. What are they going to do if Joe Biden wins? You know, I think a lot of this will go away. I mean, that's sort of been the, the conventional line from a lot of conservatives, right, is that a lot of this is, is happening because of the sort of uh, the, the fact that it hurts Trump and Republicans more broadly um, in the polls. Now, it would be deliciously ironic if it actually backfired. Um, but one would imagine that if Joe Biden is elected, all of a sudden, a lot of this unrest, you know, along with things like the coronavirus lockdown, will sort of magically dissipate. Um, and, you know, the, the narrative will be sort of uh, that this never really happened or that this was the result of Trump's election. And that's, um, you know, I don't want to prognosticate too much, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's what happens. I, I wonder if they believe that with Joe Biden in office, they will be able to enter into federal government policy planning. And some of their leaders will actually, some of the professional activist leaders will get positions within the government and that the woke revolution will be led from within the state, <laughs> not, not, from, not from outside uh, people in the streets, but it'll be people in government offices who will be pushing it. Do they, do, do you think some of them believe that? Yeah, Antifa's sort of Gramscian long march through the institutions using uh, Joe Biden as the, as the sort of uh, tool for, for taking over the American government. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting watching the intra-left debates about Biden, right? You have some hardcore lefties who, you know, refuse to support Biden, but one of the growing sort of uh, um, arguments from, from people on the hard left is that uh, Biden is someone that we can use, right? And, and, you know, they point correctly to the fact that Biden is running on the most left-wing platform in modern American history. His, his moderation is really his rhetoric and his affect, but it stops there. I mean, Biden is far more progressive of a president than, than, uh, than Barack Obama was, for example. And the fact is that Biden's general sort of political agenda is just wherever the center of gravity of the Democratic Party happens to be at any given moment. So his, you know, relative moderation uh, in, for example, the 1990s was because the Democratic Party was a more moderate party back then. But now that the Democratic Party's energy is continually pushing it leftwards to the point where you have a lot of people associated with the party who can't even bring themselves to condemn riots and, and violence unrest, um, you know, we can expect based on history, Joe Biden's presidency to be very similar to that. And I, I you know, just from watching some of the discourse with, with activists, they're very aware of that. And they understand that Joe Biden is, is someone that uh, can be sort of utilized to, to pass their, their policy agenda. And, and so I, I think absolutely that's a conversation that's going on right now. And it's something that a lot of the activists implicitly understand. You know, I hear a lot of conservatives criticizing Joe Biden for being hypocritical, for changing his, his tune on different things. And I, I, I want to say to them, that's exactly why they want him, because he's malleable. He will go with where, wherever the party, the, the power centers of the party, 
are are drifting. I think it's a great mistake for for people for conservatives to be you know, pointing out his his weaknesses because his weaknesses are why people are voting for. Him. That's why a lot of people support him. So anyway, let's let, let's shift over to to our other topic, uh, and that is the young conservatives, especially those on campus. Uh, in your National Review piece, you go back to the old debate between the libertarians and the common good social conservatives. Uh, from the 60s, uh, Milton Friedman, he would debate uh, Buckley when Buckley, Buckley went a little more libertarian later on, but before that, it was more of a social conservative. Uh, do, you, do you see that debate reflected in among young conservatives today? I do. And I, I, I think, though, that one of the significant differences is that the energy, um, at least in the intellectual wing of the sort of young conservative coalition, is much more on the social or culturally conservative side than it is on the libertarian side. Whereas if you look at the rhetoric around young conservatives in the Reagan era, for example, it was very libertarian, right? And Reagan went so far as to say the, you know, the beating heart of American conservatism is libertarianism, which I have always been sort of miffed by. Um, but I, I think looking at you know the the sort of various groups of young conservatives in my generation, uh, and and I can't speak to the sort of rank and file, but just the 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 young conservative activists, the writers, the thinkers, the commentators. They're sort of split into two categories. So you have the sort of moderate center right, mostly socially center left. Maybe they're pro life, but they're not really that interested in cultural debates. Sort of Rockefeller Republican who nerds out about tax policy and deregulation and probably voted for Jeb Bush. <laughs> and then you have uh, on the other side what uh, you know what Sorab Amari called woke conservatives in his big recent piece in The Spectator, which you know they they often have populist or post liberal sympathies. They see liberal proceduralism and so called values of an open society as counterproductive. They're really committed culture warriors who are really dissatisfied with the sort of zombie Reaganism of the pre twenty sixteen conservative consensus. And I'm I'm sort of straddled between the two of them because I have friends in both camps. I have quite dear friends in both camps. Um, I, I lean increasingly towards the latter, not in terms of wanting to throw out liberalism per se, but in terms of really understanding the fact that we are at war for our very civilization itself and we need to start acting like it. But the problem is that with some of the more sort of excitable young post-liberal conservatives, there's a tendency – to sort of scoff at the idea that individual liberty is even worth preserving or fighting for at all, and even often that the idea that the American founding was a mistake. Some of them say that explicitly. A lot more of them are sort of implicitly talking about it. Um, but that's not something I'm prepared to to buy onto at all. I think we can recover a more robust conservatism that understands that social conservatism is a big part of conserving the the true dream of the American founding without essentially doing away with, with liberalism or the liberal tradition altogether. Um, so I, I, I am, am sort of stuck between the two camps, but it's an interesting tension to see. Um, and the energy is obviously certainly on the more populist, uh, quote unquote, post-liberal side of the equation, which I think is there, there are worrying parts of it. Um, as, as far as sort of rejecting the values of the American founding. Um, but it's also long overdue in that the sort of milk toast uh, uh, libertarianism, everything can just be solved with another tax cut and more deregulation, was not what any sort of robust, serious conservatism should look like. And I'm, I'm glad that there's real understanding of that, particularly in my generation. You, you know, you mentioned 
the intellectual energy. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, uh, Reagan had just come into office and the libertarian conservatives, they, they were they were the ones who were cocky. Absolutely. And the, the social social conservatives were sort of the moral majority. Uh, they, 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 they had, you know, if anything, a very small presence on college campuses. And the, a lot of these libertarian conservatives, they were Ayn Rand people and they were atheists. Is, is atheism still a prominent feature of the young libertarian conservatives? You know, I, I don't know as much about sort of um, the militant atheism of the Randians, um, but I think it's it's certainly a more secular wing of the conservative movement. I think there's a lot of agnosticism um, and, you know, that's paired with a certain amount of social liberalism, um, you know, about, uh, you know, a variety of different sort of cultural issues. But it's interesting that you say that the libertarians were cocky uh, when, when you were my age, because now it's it's quite the opposite, where... Uh, and this is an, this is a, another thing that I think needs to be toned back a little bit on the sort of young conservative, social conservative side of things. Is there's this sort of sneering uh, disposition towards uh, the idea that you know limited government is a value that that conservatives should care about. I think a lot of libertarians increasingly feel um, like uh, they they have nothing in common with the sort of overall conservative movement anymore. And to a certain extent. You know, it's it's good that libertarians are put in their place, as it were, and understand that they are, you know, part of a coalition, but shouldn't be the sort of dominant part of the coalition. But at the same time, I worry that we uh, risk forgetting the things that we can cooperate on and we can sort of understand as collectively working together on and imposing opposing sort of progressivism writ large um, when there's this sort of um, triumphalist attitude from some from some of the social conservatives of which I count myself a member I am a social conservative it's difficult sometimes uh, to a lot of times the rhetoric between the two different camps uh, at least in my generation is, is very heated and I'm sure you've seen some of that as well do the young common good conservatives or social conservatives see Donald Trump as their guy I think so most of them do and it's it's actually, I think it's the, the manifestation among the sort of young intellectual social conservative of their support for Trump is it's, it's interesting because they're not denying the president's manifest flaws. Like I think some of the sort of quote unquote boomer conservatives do, which I really appreciate. It's more of an understanding of the fact that Trump has a lot of, and, and Trumpism even has a lot of valuable contributions to helping us rethink the quote-unquote conservative consensus, and that uh, Trump is a is a tool of a larger realignment rather than sort of a, a you know deified god king in and of himself, and and that's that's how I think about Trump. So it's 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 good to see a sort of intellectually honest Trumpism uh, manifest in that wing of my of my generation of conservatives, um, because I think that's exactly the way that conservatives should be thinking about Trump, uh, rather than, uh, you know, throwing out the entire Republican Party platform altogether and just saying we support the president. Um, so I, I think that's how a lot of the sort of, quote unquote, common good conservatives in my generation think about the president. And one of the things the social conservatives are distressed by and have been for a long time is the degree to which the culture industry has become so hostile to them going back 50 years. Libertarians have had no problem with 
with, with, with the culture industry, therefore, you know, wide open, whatever the people want. Um, let me ask, what it, do young social conservatives understand, you know, Hollywood, uh, pop music, um, a lot of, a lot of TV shows, the, the cable TV shows, uh, miniseries. Do they see those as a hostile force? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is one of the great virtues of, you know, my generation of, of, of conservatives. And one reason I'm optimistic for the future of the conservative movement is there is a recommitment to understanding that, you know, the culture war is really important, and cons any conservatism that doesn't understand just how important culture is really is not an effective conservatism, right? Sort of the socially liberal libertarianism is this weird emaciated bastardization of what a, a robust conservatism should look like, and there is much more attention being paid to the culture in, in my generation of conservatives, at least in the sort of common good conservative wing. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, it's the sort of more moderate libertarian leaning conservatives who are, you know, one of the, the things about them that can be frustrating is they have made themselves sort of inoffensive to the left. And as a result, you know, they are, you know, they're off, you know, they write op-eds and, 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 you know, go on television and, uh, you know, progressives hold them up as, you know, look at this presentable young conservative, right? I, you know, I hope this is what the future of the conservative movement looks like. And that's not a good sign if you're a conservative, right? You shouldn't be a, someone who's completely inoffensive to our political and cultural enemies. Um, and I, I think by sort of circumventing cultural issues, it allows them to, you know, really avoid having the difficult and heated debates with people about social issues. But, you know, if we as conservatives are to conserve the good, the true and the beautiful about Western civilization and about um, uh, American society, uh, especially, we need to understand that uh, any conservatism that neglects cultural issues really isn't conservative. And, you know, uh, wanting to commit to the values of a free society in terms of limited government is important, but it's one wing of a larger struggle to defend the things that make America an exceptional country. And it's, it's not the preeminent one right now. Culture is quite clearly much more important. We're seeing how much more important culture is in all of the unrest right now, right? The, for the most part, the, you know, what's happening on college campuses, what's happening in cities like Portland isn't because of, you know, overregulation or, you know, an, an overbearing EPA. It's because of a uh, social cultural industry, which has taught my generation to hate their country and to, uh, you know, look at politics with a utopian view of human nature and to sort of cut themselves off from our moral inheritance as, as, uh, as, you know, members of American society. That's what's happening. And anyone who looks at that and says, yeah, we need another tax cut, you know, that's, that's really what we need um, is, you know, I, I think, you know, you need to sort of take the take the scales out of your eyes and see what's really going on. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see young conservatives who are sort of fresher and aren't as dug into a specific sort of um, uh, political program as some, some older conservatives really be able to look at that and, and see vividly that that's really what we're talking about. Um, and, and that a, a, a conservatism for the 21st century needs to take that into account. I think that that's, that's, that's a very nice summing up of where we are right now. Thank you, Nate Huckman.
Thanks, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.